Greetings! Welcome to Beatles Stuffology. We're two friends sit about and talk BS, Beatles stuff, on a track-by-track basis pretty much for the sake of it. My name is JG McCord and I'm here with my co-host Andrew Deacon. Say hi Andrew. Hello, how are you my friend? I am doing very well my friend. How are you doing? I'm, I'm, I feel alright. It makes me feel alright. Alright is a good start as we are going to have to tackle one of the big ones it's it's another brush against the uh the iconic i suppose even though i hate that word uh which means we're going to be covering uh can't buy me love this episode but before we do that um we have to briefly segue into our that was this is as smooth as this change is ever going to get folks uh we have to briefly smoothly segue into uh our familiar section which is uh you can really get a hold of us so if anybody out there wants to get in touch uh our email address is beatlesstuffology at gmail.com we are on twitter it says here at beatles underscore ology and you can find my blog at www.jgmacquarie.scott and you can read some of Andrew's writing at www.stuffology.co.uk. Um, yeah, so get in touch with us. It would be nice to hear from our vast yeah. legion of fans out there. Please. Uh, but uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah and, please. And, and at the moment, the, I'm, I'm trying to focus the blog on, on things that are Beatles-related and Beatles-adjacent, which um, meant going into um a weird comparison to aztec camera on the last blog but um i thought it worked actually uh, and it was nice to delve into um you know the back catalog of, of roddy frame um who kind of you know has those sort of elements of virtuosity that that we might attribute to the likes i'm not not comparing him saying he's on the same level but some elements of that virtuosity um that uh mr jp mccartney uh, exhibits on this track there you go for a link back to the topic fantastic well thank you very much for that now you see that's how you do a segue i just i just sort of did a, a crash zoom but anyway okay fabulous let's talk about um can't buy me love then so yeah it's one of the big ones it's it's one of those kind of unavoidably totemic tracks it sits uh right at the end of side one of a hard day's night the album um yeah what do you reckon well should we should we deal with the um um the things that everybody already knows um i think we should let's get them out of the way yeah the the um about buying love does not relate to a financial transaction boring um that mccartney did later say that it should really have been can buy me love um you know it's sort of got that that kind of bluesy um element to it the the chorus at the start was a, a late addition another one of george's um george martin's great ideas oh i think it needs something at the start let's put something chorus like um you know so um what else is there that that we could mention that that everybody knows uh yeah recorded in paris um technically the only beatles song recorded outside of the uk except the inner light um there must be other obvious things about yeah. it. Oh yeah, that's right. It it established lots of chart records in America. We mustn't we mustn't forget to mention that. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Because am I right in thinking that this was the number one when they had the you know the whole of the top five? Uh, yes. Yeah. You are correct. So um, yeah. So there's there's that element. But you know there's there's tons of of interesting things. Some of which is related to those obvious things um, that you know it's certainly worth exploring um yeah it's um i mean it's it's a classic isn't it but you know so is knights in white satin it doesn't mean i have to like it uh, i can appreciate well, knights in white satin is terrible so that's fair enough but it's a classic 
Um, all right, Dark Side of the Moon is a classic. Doesn't mean I have to like it, and it's childlike lyrics. Um, however, um, well, we wanted people to get in touch. I'm, I'm, I'm perhaps going too far the other way in, in trying to get people to get in touch. Um, look, it's it's one of those things. It, it gives me a similar emotional reaction to some of those other big Beatles songs. And I talked about this on on a hard day's night in relation to some of those other big Lennon singles. But I was sort of thinking that this gives me a similar reaction to Paperback Writer. You know, so the link there to McCartney. I know it's a good song. I know it's got good elements. It just doesn't work for me. Whereas on Paperback Writer, there's something about those harmonies that, that annoy me. Here, it's that introduction at the start. And it's also the fact that we've got Paul McCartney's screechy voice. You know, in a previous episode, we talked about And I Love Her, where he's clean and he's crisp and sings it with just such kind of passion and emotion. Uh, whereas here, because he's trying to reach those um, those other emotions really, really quickly, those rocking emotions, for me, he just goes too quickly to what would become his, his helter-skelter voice. And, you know, it... It's it's fine. I know it's good. I know loads of people out there love it and, you know, millions bought it, you know, so on and so forth. But my emotional reaction is mm, dial it back a bit, please, Paul. OK, I think it's one of those songs that's got um, because of its sort of importance in terms of chart history, in terms of, um, you know, the Beatles themselves, in terms of cover versions, in terms of everything. I do think it has a slightly outsized legacy when it you compare it to the actual quality of the song. The song itself is is very straightforward. It's just a twelve bars blues. There's there's like one or two slightly odd chords in there, um, which kind of liven it up slightly. That there's a G thirteenth and a D minor eleventh. That's nice, um, but but <laughs> beyond that, it's just it, it's you know it's it's a rock solid kind of yeah sort of bluesy kind of number. Um, the lyrics are sufficient. I don't think I would go much further than that, but they're they're perfectly they're perfectly cromulent for what the song needs. So yeah. it's a, I mean it's not a yeah. it's not a massively you know in depth kind of thing. Oh yeah, well you know money can't buy you the thing you really want in life. It's it it it's not yeah. really. Uh, it's not really rocket science stuff. Saying that, I do think there are a few real flashes of genius in this. So I'm going to be slightly more um, positive about it, I think, than, than you are. Um, but I think in particular, like the screams that lead into George Harrison's guitar solo are really effective at kind of building mm -hmm. that tension. And and I think George knocks it out of the park. I think it's a fantastic uh, guitar solo that, that actually really drives the energy of the song rather than it's just kind of because i mean bless this little cotton socks there have been a few solos we've come across which have 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 scraped up against perfunctory um but here there seems to be a real energy to what he's doing it's really powering the song along i don't know if that's because it was fresh and so everything was just sharp and you know everything was done very quickly whatever the reason though it it works incredibly well and having that having that extra element, having George really like pull it out of the bag when they needed it, I think really does help to elevate the quality of the single. So can we can we delve into the the, the realms of speculation? Oh, by the way, oh, I, I think we can. Um, I, I've remembered the um, the other thing that everybody knows, blah, blah, blah. And that's the lack of harmonies on this song. Right. Oh, yes. Of course, uh, that's, of but that's something we, we'll touch on. OK, so I mean, I agree with you. Um, I think George's solo is 
is fantastic and and you know much like his um his solo in and i love her it just seems to elevate what's going on um around it well okay so obviously after you know a couple of years he's developing his craft clearly um you know i think one of the reasons perhaps why some of the solos up till now haven't been much cop is purely because if they're writing songs and recording them in a short space of time then he's got no time to to really perfect something well it's possible here's the speculation that here he has the time so um it's originally recorded in paris uh 29th of january um 1964 so they do four takes at the end of of the session where they're recording the songs for the german market the song is finished on the 25th of feb and in between you know the end of january and the 25th of february such a lot happens to them we get the whole american experience and the massive boost that they must have got from being in america and meeting a whole load of other people that they could then be inspired from but also if you just work it out that potentially george has got nearly a month to think about how that solo is going to go you know they're really living with that song for a long time before it's absolutely finished the night they finish it as well also happens to be george's 21st birthday so there's your extra bit of speculation that, that perhaps just perhaps that um actually i'm starting to doubt that date now because we've quite recently had the the 80th birthday celebration i read that in a book it could be wrong oh well shall i just we'll just go with it anyway go with it yeah yeah, yeah we'll go with don't, it don't lose so, momentum no absolutely it's 21st birthday so he's he's produced something special that goes with it but i think that 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 time between writing originally recording um and then finishing makes a massive difference to how this song feels and that's again to applaud it for its sheer size bravado confidence even if you know caveat it's a size bravado confidence that i'm not really a massive fan of yeah i think confidence is the word and i think i think you i think you're definitely onto something because of course the, the, the thing that people always observe about can't buy me love is the speed with which it was written you know, done very quickly, you know, Grand Piano, George V Hotel. I've stayed in the George V Hotel in Paris, actually. Um, yeah, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, <laughs> Did you have a pillow fight? <laughs> Sorry? Did you have a pillow fight? Um, I didn't have a pillow fight. I also didn't have a number one hit. So maybe that was right. Maybe that, that was what that was would, missing from the that experience. That would make a difference, um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, 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 these things do matter. Um, but yeah, but that gap between the two, and there's that thing about, you know, where you can kind of hear the original solo that George had, um on the on the recording because of the limited number of tracks and and, and having to get it um re-recorded again but it works and he had the time to be able to perfect it and it really makes all the difference it just it adds so much to the song it just powers everything along and and the kind of the fallout of it as well the, the, the way the solo kind of falls back into can't buy me love um the line again it's just it it, it feels like the most simple thing but it just slots in mm. together perfectly it's just it's just a glorious little moment yeah and it'll be interesting as we go through the the next couple of albums just to see how much his confidence um develops how much you know he expands as a player because you know there's no doubt that he's he's good at this point you know and by contemporary standards he's obviously very good and very good for these enormously talented musicians to put their their faith in and say okay you're the lead guitarist even though as we know some of the best Beatles guitar solos are done 
by Paul McCartney. Um, you know, it just, just so happens that, you know, they've got possibly someone who's equally as good a guitar player playing bass. You know, that's life. By the way, the one thing that, that I've, been, I've been thinking for a long, 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 long time, I don't think I've mentioned it before in this podcast, is after the Beatles, bear in mind he didn't really want to be a bass player. Why did McCartney carry on playing bass? Why didn't he just switch in live performances, for example, to playing guitar? Leave that one there and, and we'll come back at another point. So, yeah, it's just, just kind of track the development of George, the growth of George um, as, a, as a singer. Because, as we've said previously, happy just to dance with you. It's not the greatest vocal in the world. And yet, you know, I've been listening to some of the, um, you know, All Things Must Pass uh, album again. And, you know, things like If Not For You. I just love him singing on If Not For You. You know, so there's that that growth over the next <laughs> six years. Um but how much think about how much then that drives the Beatles forward as much as it drives George Harrison forward. But um, yeah, lots to lots to you know think about there. But it doesn't stop the rest of the song being relatively. Hmm. I wonder. I wonder if if we had a Lloyd Lloyd's Bank type advert where it was all slowed down and haunting. Um, you know, um, whether or not it would it would still feel as effective. It feels like it works because it's so fast, because it gets in, it does what it needs to do. It has a guitar solo, boom, we've finished. Don't know what you think about that. I mean, yeah, I think the, the whole thing about the song is that it's a rush. That's that's what it is. It's it's you know finding its energy from its its space and momentum. And I think one of the things that the Ella Fitzgerald version, which we're going to have to talk about at some mm -hmm. point as well, so here we are talking about it, um, kind of shows is that for all that the song can be kind of rearranged and, and kind of uh, put into maybe different musical idioms, it loses a little in that translation. And I think a lot of that is due to the speed and the momentum and the enthusiasm with which the Beatles record it. Because, again, as we were saying earlier, this is a simple 12-bar blues. Mm -hmm. The lyrics aren't really all that, um, with with kind of one exception, maybe. And when you move it away from the performance that kind of made the song, that element kind of gets lost. There's, I mean, there's a few other cover versions around, and they're all fine but it's another one of those songs yeah. where like mostly it's played straight you can do like the Arthur Gerald version isn't just played straight it's it's done as a jazz standard and it's fine but it's never any better than fine it doesn't it doesn't have that extra magical ingredient that makes it special there's nothing wrong with it Mm. Ella Fitzgerald's voice is perfectly fine for it uh, I keep coming back to the F word fine but it's just it's not remarkable. And what is impressive about the Beatles version is that it manages to take all of those incredibly simplistic elements and make something remarkable mm. out of them. And I think a lot of that is the driving energy. So, yeah, yeah I, I don't know if slow movie trailer Lloyd's Bank style um, kind of approach to this song would, would do anything other than expose yeah. its weaknesses, where the sense of momentum and speed of the original kind of helps to cover that up. Yeah, and, and you know, we've said before, you know, the, well, I've, certainly I've said before, that the lyrics thing doesn't really, but unless they're absolute clunkers, and so obviously bad. The, the the kind of the anodyne, dull, I love you, you love me type lyrics doesn't really massively bother me because 
Um, you know, what does bother me is when when people focus solely on the lyrics because they don't feel comfortable enough talking about, you know, the melody or, you know, the instrumentation or anything else to do with the song. It's why you see a lot of, you know, rock reviews, um, less so these days, I think, but a lot of them focus on on the lyrics and how they're sung because it's so much easier for someone who's, you know, a writer to associate with that but the lyrics are just one element of the song and you can have amazing lyrics but an absolutely hideous melody and it, it's not actually going to make it shine fact is does its job can't buy me love great fine fair enough nothing offensive in there um you know and sort of rolls through with fairly anodyne lyrics but it fits the the, the mood of the song it works it makes you feel the thing that he wants you to feel um move on there's another track coming on along in a second once you flip over to the to side b so um yeah great love it um you know it's 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 we're gonna start seeing a contrast a lot more over the next couple of albums when they become deliberately a little bit more lyrically sophisticated um you know where people might start raving about nowhere man and you might think well, actually just a pretentious load of garbage or you might get the contrast between something like, you know, Eleanor Rigby and Act Naturally. They, that's that's when I think it's going to stand out a little bit more. But for the moment, um, you know, I kind of shrug my shoulders and go, well, you know, the lyrics are the lyrics. Um, they're just a, a vehicle for the voice. And in this case, um, you know, I think that vehicle is the one that, that needs a little bit more scrutiny. But then I think, you know, people either like that McCartney screech or they don't. Um, some people seem to. Um, and I don't, but what can you say? You get just over two minutes of, of peppy pop, uh, Parisian peppy pop. Can I extend that any further? Uh, probably. Okay. Um, um, perky Parisian peppy pop. No, I'm going to stop there because that's too many peas. Um, and you know, obviously I don't want to completely destroy whatever audience that we do have. Um, yeah. So, you know, you mentioned the Ella Fitzgerald one. Did you look at any other covers of this? Because there didn't really seem to be that many around of, of any particular note. No, there's there's not that many which are all that exciting. It, it's a it's a funny thing for uh, a song like this to be so well not. I mean, hmm. do we want to call this a standard? Do we think that's do we think that's too, yeah, too possibly. strong? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. What's I mean, the difference between a standard and a classic? Well, that's a very good question, and I don't know if we've got time to go into that right now. Um, uh, but I, I, I mean, it's not maybe a, it's maybe not a a standard in the same way that yesterday or or, or something is. Mm. Um, but I, it's still one of the most well known songs in all of pop history. So you know, it does it does have that behind it, um, and yet. Uh, yeah, finding a remarkable cover version that's that's kind of worth anything is 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 a bit of a it's a bit of an uphill struggle. Um, yeah. I mean, McCartney loves playing this song. I know that yeah. doesn't qualify as a as a as a cover version, or does it? Again, a question for another time, perhaps. Um, but you know, he loves playing this song live, and 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 fair enough. Um, the Supremes version of this song is not particularly fantastic. Mm. Um, yeah, we talked about the Arthur Fitzgerald version, which is fine. Um, and for the rest of it, it's a bit, it's a bit hard to find any versions of the song which aren't just 
kind of either doing the jazz thing, which the Fitzgerald version does, or just playing it straight, which the Beatles do. It, there's just not a lot. That's, there's that's not, not there, that's there. not uncommon, by the way. And I think, therefore, that, that veers it more towards a classic than a standard, because if it was a standard, that's fair. I think it would be, you know, you could imagine Frank Sinatra and his ilk uh, doing it and lots of, you know, sort of up-and-coming young bands doing it through to, um, you know, um, a heavy metal act when they're doing their their um, semi-regular obligatory albums with the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Um, you know, you can imagine that that huge range of artists doing it. Almost, if you like, you can imagine someone turning up with, um, uh, say, Val Dudekin or, or Michael Parkinson <laughs> on, on a Saturday night and saying, and here's their version of... Beatles classic, or the Beatles standard. You see what I mean? So I think a standard is yeah, something. That... I think no. I think I think I think you're right. I think that's a good distinction to make actually. So yeah, and no, I think in this case you're right. It, it's it's a classic, not a standard. <laughs> yeah, that's what people are paying their their, their huge amount of money for. Uh, to hear that, that, that kind, of kind, of, kind of insight you only get on stuffology, folks. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, well, well, that's fair enough. Um, I think the 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 twelve string on this, if um, Ian McDonald's to be believed, also makes a difference. I think it feels like um, yeah, potentially it's a little bit more transatlantic than some of the songs that that we've had before. It sort of feels like it is kind of reaching out to um a much broader audience you know i i certainly don't feel like it's it's you know very english um in its approach so so i think that works um you know it's it's um it, i think maybe also we should get into the the um the harmonies element and and the reason for, for starting with the harmonies is because there is a version on anthology one which has backing vocals and for want of a better expression, it is rotten. It is absolutely <laughs> rotten. Now, yep. of, of course, that's just an opinion. And certainly the people, because I, I did listen to it on the uh, the popular um, internet portal, YouTube. And of course, if you go below the line, you will find some people who rave about it and say it's so much better than the original. Oh, it's fantastic. They should have released this. To which I say, you're deluded. It's it's just not. I mean, it feels so wrong. Although part of me thinks that if that was the version I'd heard and known, then if I'd heard on Anthology 1 a version with no backing vocals, I'd probably feel the same about that. So how much of that is familiarity? I don't know. But all I have to say is like sticking ooze at the back of this just feels like such a mistake. I think the anthology version is really interesting. And I mean, that's the whole point of the anthology project. Are you, the first sorry, place, can, I, can I just check? Are you doing, um, you know, air quotes, interesting, or do you literally mean interesting? I literally mean interesting. I think it's interesting to hear the song. But please okay, note right, that interesting right. is not a synonym for good. Thank you. Just wanted to clarify. <clears throat> nope, that's absolutely fine. The floor um, is yours. Yeah, thank you. Um, I, think it's, I think it's interesting to hear that version because it does... 
often i think when we approach the beatles we talk about the way that um the recording process or the songwriting process is iterative so they go through it again and again to improve something they add something to it go back listen go back listen go back listen etc that iterative process is also something which extends across the entirety of their career the, the jump from 63 to 70 is is in many ways an, an iterative step every every step is another uh, another improvement another development another growth and so on what very rarely gets talked about is when they travel in the other direction when something is improved by the removal of something mm -hmm. in this case those backing vocals i agree with you i think the i think the original version of the single is far far superior and i, I did try to listen to the anthology version quite a few times in order to try and get rid of that familiarity bias. Now, there's no possible way, uh, I am now half a century old at this point, and there is no possible way I could listen to this song often enough that it was going to, it's going to be able to match how often I've listened to the original. Of course not. But I think even given that kind of familiarity bias with the original, those backing vocals just don't really work. They're not adding anything. They're obviously they're obviously just placeholders, uh, but they're not adding anything to the song. It's not delivering any kind of emotional impact. It's not really driving any more energy. They're just there because, well, that's what the Beatles do. They put backing vocals on all their stuff. Yeah. And and the song doesn't require it. So it's it's I think it is genuinely interesting to see a song um, whereby it is being improved by removing something rather than by adding something. And I think that's a lot of the value of, of the anthology project is that you get to have those insights uh, into the way that song develops that you, you wouldn't otherwise have. So, so no, I do genuinely think that the, the version on anthology is really interesting, just not better. Yeah, and it's in interesting, if you like, that you, you clearly listen to it and then thought about it deeply in that way whereas i listened to it and i thought oh that's a bit crap and then moved straight on to, <laughs> to thinking about something else um yeah 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 that's fair enough um i mean thinking about it, it in relation to that isn't um i think bob dylan's sort of semi-quote or something he said referred to in in the craig brown book about talking about how the beatles were um were basically all about the harmonies at, at this point i think that was the only thing that he found interesting of course then what we get is them hitting america big time with um without um the harmony so i think there's there's an element of uh um of irony um in that so um yeah so i suppose we kind of hit um a point where um i mean we could go deeper and deeper and deeper into the song but I'm, I'm not quite sure my heart's in it. I mean, but where it is interesting to look is because it's on side A of Hard Day's Night, um, even though we've, we've scuppered our own system. I mean, you know, we what perhaps we should have led with is the fact that, of course, we, we're talking about these on a chronological basis in order of when they're released. But we decided to, to go with the album release rather than the single release because both the A side and the B side were on the album and then it it just would have got confusing that's that's basically it so but to, to talk about it in relation to the film itself and the first thing i think to mention about the film is that it's used twice and it's used in very active sequences so they, they've clearly um you know the producers director 
you know, screenwriter, whoever else is involved at this stage, um, has clearly listened to it and thought, well, we've got these um, these scenes with the boys larking about, and then we've got this this chase scene with the police. Do you know what? If it's both of them, so we will use it for both of them. It's very odd. Yeah, it is. I I, I think. Um, well, okay, no, actually, before I express an opinion, I want to ask your opinion on something, which oh, is okay. which of those which of those two sequences do you think works best? Oh, do you know? I think of all the film sequences that we've had so far, I think they're the ones that that collectively work the least. Um, that's really interesting because I agree with you, and I didn't think that's what you were going to say. <laughs> well, I've, I've 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 raved about some of the previous sequences. Uh, I, some true. of them have just been fantastic, even though they have some of them have had their issues. Um, you know, albeit, and I love her concentrating on John's acoustic guitar as he sits waiting in a psychiatrist's chair, um, while George is actually playing the guitar solo. For example, you know, little things like that that just just seem a little bit odd. There have been some brilliant, brilliant sequences. But for Can't Buy Me Love, they had a helicopter and a field and just seemed to say, run around that field, sports pitch, whatever, you know, and um, and we'll video you or film you being wacky because you're all wacky. Um, and then the, the chase sequence to and from the police station past the 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 um the car thief who's you know breaking into the car and hiding and oh then we've got the gag of him getting in the car and and the policeman getting in the car and saying follow them and you know all of that sort of thing and i just think okay well it's that i think for me the least sophisticated elements of the film they are um particularly the the, the police chase one you know it's fun though it is it's the thing that ties that film, I think, more to the 50s than the 60s. And considering how much these four lads moved us forward in terms of, you know, away from the 50s and a 50s mentality into the 60s, I just think it's a little bit surprising. I suppose the only thing I can think of would be, does it have anything vaguely in common with some of the humour of... I mean, it's not really very goonish. I mean, I've listened to a lot of the goons when I was a teenager, and and it just... I don't think the goons did wacky. They did kind of surreal, odd, but not wacky. Yeah. So what's what's your beef with it, then? Um, I just don't think either sequence is very good. <laughs> I don't think... It, <laughs> I realise that's not the most sophisticated analysis one could come up with, but I think it feels um, flatly uninventive in a way that most of the other sequences in the movie, certainly the music sequences in the movie, just don't. One of the problems... Like you said, like, you know... Uh, you know, for the, the, the better known of the two, you know, they've got a field and a helicopter. Yeah, they sure do. And they are not afraid to use it. But all that kind of larking around just never really seems to add up to anything. Yeah, it's it's kind of I know it's too early, but it's kind of it's that kind of Benny Hill-esque sort of, oh, yeah. you know, if we just speed up the footage a bit, yeah. it'll be funny. Yeah, no. Um, and it doesn't even have the good grace to have yakety sax, which is one of the finest pieces of music ever recorded, um, you know, on the soundtrack. So it, I don't know. It just looks it looks kind of stale. It's interesting you say you think it makes it seem kind of 50s. Um, I hadn't considered that, but you might you might be onto something there. And I guess those are the kind of sequences that you would have got more in those kind of maybe um, 
Cliff Richardy movies, or I don't know. Is there something that 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 that, that nicely um, dovetails into its trad dad? I still haven't a, seen a it little. yet. Uh, uh, there's, yeah, I suppose they would sort of say it's a little bit anarchic, maybe. And it, I mean, if you wanted to delve into the, um, you know, the metaphor territory, is them escaping the pressures of the day, and and just being kids, um, oh, sure, which sure. which is which is fine, you know, it, but. It just lacks that that sophistication. It um it just seems like it's just not sort of um yeah maybe it's it's that 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 sort of sense that that it wasn't the most tightly scripted and planned movie that it was elements that were clearly developed while they were still making it mostly because they um you know the most of the songs weren't weren't actually written until you know, either just before or even part of the way through filming. Um, and, and actually, I've, I've, I've sort of noted down here, I can't remember where I've, I've, I read it, but apparently one of the sequences was originally set aside for I'll Cry Instead. So they weren't going to use Can't Buy Me Love Twice, but it was a relatively late decision to replace um, I'll Cry Instead. It's a shame I haven't written down uh, which one, but um, you'd sort of think that perhaps it would, that would be more fitting the the emotional mood of the first one, where they're 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 kind of escaping the the pressures of the day. Um, but you know, we know that Hard Day's Night's not a, a perfect film. Um, after all, they're acting in it, so there's always going to be some issues with it. Um, and hey, who's gonna quibble about them having fun? After all, they had a lot of fun making Help, didn't they? And that turned out all right. <laughs> well, uh... Mm, that's certainly a conversation for another day. Um, I mean, I'm sure they enjoyed the experience of making it. Yeah, that that bit I will not uh, I will not choose to question. Anyway, um, I think the other thing about the the larking about in the field stuff is, is it just feels like runtime. Um, it's just it just seems to exist for the sake of you know. Well, it, it gives us a couple of minutes of footage, um, so it bumps up our runtime, but we haven't really. We haven't really got any ideas for it. I mean, yeah, you're right. Obviously, it's it's not a perfect film. And for all the innovation that we've talked about in the, the sort of previous few songs, for all the, the technical complexity, um, for all the kind of uh, surprising kind of media literacy and, and kind of awareness of it, the fact that it's fallen down on this one sequence, I mean, it's a pretty minor demerit in the grand scheme of things. Now, obviously, we will talk about the movie in its entirety once we get to the end of this album. Um... But, you know, that's the whole thing about being a, you know, pioneer of any sort mm-hmm. is that you're not necessarily going to get 100% things right 100% of the time. The, the Spoilers for my opinion, but the Beatles never produce a perfect movie. But of course they don't. Um, you know, that, and that's fine. But that's not a, it's not a criticism of them. It's not a demerit of them. It's just one of those things. And, and Hard Day's Night as a movie is so close to, I mean, I think it is the best of the the, the ones that they make. Um, Yellow Submarine's a bit different. It's hard to do direct <laughs> comparison, but uh, we'll we'll get there. Uh, but you know, for the rest of it, I think it's you know, it, it's as good as you could possibly hope that it could be in in nineteen sixty three, nineteen sixty four. And you know, if if one sequence just falls a bit flat, well, okay, it's this one. But you get to enjoy the song twice. So if you if you if you like the song, that's that's fine. Yeah, and I suppose it would have it would have been one of the more familiar songs um, to the listeners as it was a single 
um actually what's the good question was it it was a single before the album came out wasn't it so and before it therefore was a single before, bef- yeah, a single yeah before the album came out and it sold over a million so, so i suspect less less familiar more unavoidable well exactly so therefore it's it's quite a good driver in order to get people into the film if you if you needed another reason the fact that they are they are going to get to hear it um because there would otherwise have been quite a lot of unfamiliar songs for them to sit through so you know give the audience what they want as it were although really you'd have thought in order to do that you would have perhaps spaced them out a little bit more in the film but um you know it works but you know this this song has more of a a film life than just a hard day's night um because it's um it's another one of those song titles that is uh, that has a film named after it um you know so terrible uh, terrible film uh, well, you know, I, I can't comment because I've not seen it, but certainly one of the reviews said that, um, or uh, rather, I'm going to big shout out to the Wikipedia page. Love those people with Wiki Towers. Um, can't Buy Me Love received mixed reviews, but became the sleeper hit of the summer, apparently. That summer mm-hmm. being 1986. Now, obviously, we like to think that the, the 1980s were, were enlightened times full of you know um positive liberal values after all you know those those very sensitive moving films of john hughes uh came out in the 80s though all those teen comedies which you know didn't involve rich kids being twats basically none of them did absolutely none of them um especially not that lovely charming ferris bueller dear listener don't rewatch ferris bueller you'll be very very disappointed however can't buy me love american teen romantic comedy um it involves a nerd at high school giving a cheerleader a thousand dollars to pretend to be his girlfriend for a month yeah it definitely a 1980s teen comedy so here's my review i think that just about sums it up yeah i think that covers it pretty concisely it, it's a funny thing because it's it's got some people in that you might have heard of including the daughter of mickey dolenz here you go um <laughs> but it it just feels like it's one of those those excuses um, to um, you know have a title that that's familiar, which is a shame because there were there were other films. So Robert Zemeckis's first film is called I Want to Hold Your Hand, and that's about a group of fans trying to get to see the Beatles in New York. Well, I can see the logic there. That makes sense. A group of friends hold your hands, go to see the Beatles in New York. At least it's thematically relevant as opposed to just plucking a title uh from from a song that you quite like you know not saying it's lazy or anything but it's just a little bit on the lazy side well it's possible um uh, i mean they end up as a couple at the end of the movie so that kind of validates mccartney's uh assertion that maybe it should have been called can buy me love because I, I don't I'm not familiar enough with the movie to know whether he gets his thousand quid back but you know in the in the end you know they they end up together as a couple so uh wow so you're saying that the the dodgy premise of him paying her a thousand dollars to pretend to be uh, his girlfriend for a month ends up with him no doubt becoming a little less nerdy and her seeing the good in him well who'd have thought it's Gosh. it's quite the plot turnaround i think you'll agree it is yeah i mean i, I suppose for me the only real point of, of interest was that i knew nothing about 
um, Amanda Peterson, who's the the female lead in it, who seems to have had quite a tragic uh, life and and died pretty young, um, which then apologies this is going to sound a little bit trite and contrived i mean it's trite yes but it's not contrived because it's only just occurred to me which then sort of at least fits with the scene in a hard day's night about the pressures of fame um whereas the beatles ran around in a field um it would seem like amanda peterson didn't have the same luck and opportunities in attempting to deal with with her fame um but hey that that sort of brings us back to um um the topic yeah the paris thing is is interesting isn't it um you know the fact that they were over in paris for a run of shows i don't know how often they would have played outside of paris it almost feels like it's one of those tours where hey we're going to go to france and we're going to play paris uh and that's it you know just like i think with the, the live shows they did in america um in february they did uh washington New York and did they play Miami while they were down there recording the other Ed Sullivan shows? Uh I don't know off the top of my head. No, but honest. it's but it's not one of those those intensive let's work America type tours that we might talk about. It was very much kind of like, you know, the flyover, just just do the you know, the big markets um and and everyone else um is going to follow. But you know, I did um, do a quick kind of um, Google Maps to just sort of see, because I've been to Paris a few times. I know Paris quite well, um, but it's never occurred to me to look up where this studio is. It's a good job I did because it doesn't exist anymore. It's now, a, you know, a supermarket of the equivalent of, say, a um, Sainsbury's local. Yeah, a sort of big kind of apartment block, um, office block with, um, with a little supermarket uh, attached. Now, whether they demolished the original building um, I don't know, but certainly the next time in Paris, I, you know, it's a little bit like yeah, um, we were in San Francisco in the summer and it did occur to me that maybe I could go out to Candle, where Candlestick Park was, um, you know, big significant moment in, in Beatles cultural history in terms of, you know, final shows and all of that. But then you just think, well, it's not there anymore. And you're just going to look at a housing estate. So, uh, yeah, and also it's a long way from the city centre just didn't seem worth it no um, that's fair enough it's a bit of a shame that's nice and upbeat isn't it um but while i'm on on the link sorry i'm i'm i'm, I'm kind of linking all over the place here uh, my links are leaking um again just to kind of um sort of connect up some of these dots you know with american gigs and you know the whole sort of paris thing because we mentioned earlier that the you know the rhythm track was put down at the end of january 64 and it was finished then in February 25th. I've since confirmed it is George's birthday. Um, but actually, that's not the last time they ever recorded anything on this song. Because in, get this, January 66, overdubs for the Shea Stadium TV special were recorded. And, and apparently McCartney actually redid his bass part. All right. So, okay. um, you know, having said earlier that between the 29th of January and the 25th of Feb, a lot can happen in a month. Well, just think about everything that happened in the next 23 months, that by the time we get to January 66, you know, McCartney's in the studio revisiting this bass part for Can't Buy Me Love, and yet so much has happened. They have moved so far forward since then. It must have felt very, very odd to be reliving something um, 
so old, man, so old, so of its time. Um, and also, you know, sort of probably not too far from the point when that Beatles collection uh, was released, you know, Oldies But Goldies. Oldies But Goldies, yeah. Um, funny title, that one, isn't it? Bear in mind, you know, <laughs> um, where they were. But, but they used yeah. to have that in cassette, I'm ashamed to yep. admit. <laughs> yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just have a lot of Beatles albums on, on cassette. Um, and actually, ironically, some of them I don't own anymore because I've never sort of replaced the cassettes, um, having thrown those out quite some time ago. Incidentally, I think we should both pat ourselves on the back for having managed to do a Shea Stadium reference without uh, also doing a Ruttles reference. So well done. Yes. Us. Yeah, absolutely. That's that's one of my, my favourite jokes on, on um, you know, Twitter or, uh, yeah, anyway. Um, yeah, no, we're not going to go there. Don't do it. Don't do uh, it. No, no, no. We'll, um, we'll, we'll, we'll keep that for a, a future discussion, no doubt. But, yeah, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. So... Um, what else have you got on your, your little tick list of, of can't-buy-me-love things? Um, I think we've actually covered everything which is on my tick list of can't-buy-me-love things. Do you, do you, I mean, I know we, we've talked about the lyrics before, but is is there anything really, any value in having a conversation about the my friend and the nature of... I mentioned earlier that there was one thing of the lyrics which might not be completely disposable, and that was it. It, okay. it, the, the 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 my friend. Um, I think it's I think it's in the Ian McDonald book that he he he's, he re- describes it as being like coolly asexual or or coolly unromantic or something like that, um, because it's not my dear or my baby or my girl or something like that. Um, it's interesting, but I don't know that I can elucidate much more from it than that. It, it, it's an interesting turn of phrase and not the sort of thing that you would necessarily get in sort of other sort of contemporary pop songs or even other contemporary yeah. Beatles songs. So yeah. it, it's, it's this, this time you, you, you can deploy all the air quotes you want. It's interesting, inverted <laughs> commas. Um, but I don't know if I actually have anything more to say about it than no, that. No, and, and I think, um, what was the alternative? Was, was it going to be dear, I think? Yeah, I think dear, um, yeah. I think friend scans a little bit better so there's there's the element of the sound there um but you know this is where it's, it's kind of difficult to get too deeply into it except to say that ian mcdonald didn't always know what he was talking about yeah diamond ring my friend well you're my friend i ain't buying you a diamond ring but then if it makes you feel all right you know so don't don't look too hard at, at the lyrics here um yeah, we know what he means. Is from my point of view, that's that's the key thing. We know what he means. We know what he's going for, um, and I think you know if we get too picky with it, then we might as well be doing a podcast on on Larkin. Well, let's keep that one in the back pocket for now, <laughs> shall we? <laughs> we'll, we'll 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 see where we go with that. Yeah, yeah. So think- you know, it's it, it's um. It, Look, it's it's a piece of fun. It's it's um it is good. It, it's just I don't love it. It doesn't feel. It feels like it is a classic, but you don't have to love everything that is a classic. Um, you know there are so. I mean, I use the trite example of of um, uh, eventually of of Dark Side of the Moon earlier, which I think has been venerated beyond belief. And I think that's the kind of thing where you can pick holes in the lyrics because 
Roger Waters clearly wants his lyrics to mean something. They are so deep, man. And actually, they're not. Um, but, you know, if you sort of take, um, you know, a piece of art, it's perfectly possible to, um, you know, go to the gallery, look at a Picasso and think, well, everybody else likes it. I, I just I just don't get it. Um, or it doesn't speak to me. Not everything is going to speak to to individuals. Um, but the fact that it spoke to so many people and actually wasn't this one of the last, if not the last million pound, million pound, um, million seller of the Beatles singles, or maybe there's one or maybe two more to come. Um, but it's, we're getting towards the end of the, of yeah, the million we're, sellers, we're, aren't we? We're reaching the end of that run. Yeah. Which, which I think could be more of a cultural thing maybe, but, um, you know, we, we can sort of cover that in, in time when we talk about other singles. Um, so, you know, like it, great. Um, I'd be interested in knowing where McCartney got the phrase from. I've, I've not bought the lyrics book, um, whether it's just a phrase that he plucked out of air. There are lots of different similar phrases in, in literature, and, and, but um, nothing that matches this. Um, so I think the only thing for me would, would be at some point to find out whether or not this is a unique McCartneyism that he's gifted the language, but it's probably an amalgam of, of several different things. So, um, yeah, like it, don't love it. Um, so bish bash bosh, seven out of 10. Thank you very much. Job done. Uh, well, you preempted my, well, if that's the case, how are you going to score it? Well, um, 7 out of 10. Okay, that's clear enough. I think I'm going to match you. I think I'll give it 7 out of 10 as well. Um, I, I think I feel a little bit more positive about it than you, but I don't yeah. feel that I can really give it much more than that. It, it It's very good at what it does, but what it does, even at this point in the Beatles' career, is is kind of straightforward you know we've we've had more sophisticated songs than this even just on the hard days uh, on a hard day's night um soundtrack and this is the last song obviously that we'll be covering in terms of the actual movie and they can do better than this at this point in their <laughs> career so um i'm certainly not going to um take away from its uh, excellent elements the 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 guitar solo the energy the screams all that that all works they're better than this at this point now. And, yeah. and I can't really get away from that. And, so and yeah, I think, 7 out of 10 from me. And I think when we go on to, to side two, we'll see that with things like Things We Said Today, for example, yeah. which has which has much greater sharpness and and, and clarity to it. And it's it's much more you know, of an interesting piece musically. Um, so, you know, there's, there is, there's progression to be had. Um, you could see how it's it's another one of those those moments in time that says, well, we were this, now we're this, and we're pointing towards well, we're going to go on and and be this. But it's an interesting way to bring um, side A to a close. It sure is, and bring it to a close. We have. I left um, that for you. I'm pleased you picked that up. I left that one hanging there for you. Thank you very much. I think we're getting better at this, right? Uh, so before long, it'll be so seamless, we won't even have to point it out to each other. <laughs> right, excellent, good. Well, uh, just to reiterate what we said earlier on, you can contact us by email. We are beetlestuffology at gmail.com. Our Twitter is at Beatles underscore ology. My blog is www.jgmacquarie.scot and Andrew's is www.stuffology.com. 
www.talkingtrek.co.uk. And please also check out my other podcast, which is Talking Trek to You, where a noob and an expert go through the original episodes of Star Trek episode by episode. Please like, rate, reviews, and any podcast that podcatcher even that you're using uh, so that more people can find the show. Next episode, it's time to flip the disc and we will be discussing any time at all. But until then, keep listening.